Luke chapter 6, you may in the hazy, distant memory somewhere recall us going through Luke. (laughs) Uh, It started, just so you know, in Advent 2018. (laughs) That's when the Luke messages began, looking at the different songs of Advent from Zechariah and Mary and, and others in the in the early chapters of Luke, and Simeon and Anna. Uh, we then did about 15 messages in Luke. And the last one was, in, was on the 22nd of November 2020. So it's been a while. Um, blame various things, lockdowns and all, all that. But we're going back to Luke for a while. Um, probably for a, a good chunk of this term, we'll go back into, into Luke's gospel Really because we want to sharpen our gaze once again on Jesus. That's the purpose. Uh, going through a gospel so that we are looking at him, that we really are getting a balanced biblical perspective on who Jesus is. I'm amazed sometimes at the questions I'll get asked by people who are Christians and who are about church and have been about church for probably most of their lives. And they'll ask a question and I just think, If you read the Gospels, you wouldn't have to ask. (laughs) I think we can fall into a pattern of just following a Jesus we've been told about or following a Jesus that we've made up in our own heads that we would like him to be like, but not actually following the Jesus of the Gospels. So back into the Gospels, back into Luke. And no matter how many times you read the Gospels, there are parts that just hit you between the eyes and... As I came back to Luke and thought about this, I thought to myself, we're in chapter 6, and I thought, here's a passage I'd rather not do. But when you you sort of commit to going through a book, I think that's the useful thing. You tackle, you deal with everything as it comes, even if you wouldn't want to deal with it. And then I thought to myself, it's been so long since we were in Luke. Could I just mislead people into thinking that we had covered that and start somewhere else as we pick up again? But I didn't feel that would be right. So we're in chapter 6, verse 17. I'm going to read verses 17 to 26. This is Luke's account of the Sermon on the Mount. It's much shorter than Matthew's. About 100 verses shorter than Matthew's. Leaves out a lot of the legal stuff that Matthew has. Because Matthew writes for Jewish people mainly. And Luke is writing to Gentiles. So Luke leaves out a lot of stuff that Matthew records and has a shorter version of things. So here we go with uh, Luke chapter 6. Jesus went down with them and stood on a level place. There you have the first difference between Matthew and Luke. Matthew, you've got the Sermon on the Mount. Luke, you've got the Sermon on the Plain, on a level place. Was it two different sermons? Might have been. Most preachers will preach the same sermon more than once, just so you know, if you haven't realized it already. So it it might have been two different sermons, or if you look at the geography of Galilee, you go up on a mountain and you will find lots of level places and plains and plateaus. So he could have been up on a mountain on a level part of it. We don't know. A large crowd of his disciples was there and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured 
and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, now this is the bit that I just feel hits you like a steam train no matter how many times you read it. Blessed are you who are poor. Really? (laughs) For yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now. Really? (laughs) Blessed are you who weep, who mourn? For you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich. Really? (laughs) Woe to you who are rich. Every one of us probably falls into the top 1% of wealthy people on planet earth. Woe to you who are rich. For you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now. For you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now. For you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. For that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. Goodness me, that is hard to read. How many times have we heard the Beatitudes? But you know what? We tend to hear them from Matthew's gospel because they're a wee bit nicer in Matthew's version. And Matthew doesn't have the woe bit that tends to sting a little. He leaves that out. So most, most series that we hear on the Sermon on the Mount come from Matthew. I was so tempted to sort of merge the two together and lean into Matthew because that would have been easier. But we're going through Luke. Did Jesus really say that all who are poor, hungry, mourning, persecuted are actually blessed? Did he really say that everyone who's rich, well-fed, happy and honoured by people around them, that those are cursed people or people with woes upon them? Is it a blessing to be poor? Is it a blessing to be hungry, to be mourning in a state of mourning and weeping? Is that a blessing? And the answer to those questions, I would say, is no, it is not a blessing to be poor. There's no intrinsic benefit in being poor, nor is there automatic evil in being rich. But there are attitudes that can lead to evil behavior and wrong mindsets. There are two groups here. There's the blessed group and there's the woe group. If you have your Bible open in front of you, it would be helpful just to see how it's broken up. Because you've got these four things addressed to the blessed and four things addressed to the woe group. And one of the things that people sometimes do with Luke's version is they will look at something like verse 20. Blessed are you who are poor. And they will say this only applies to people who are economically poor, who don't have enough money. Or blessed are you who hunger and say that it only applies to those who don't have enough physical food. Now, 
those categories do apply. But if you look at what's, what Jesus says in verse 22, he talks about it being because of the Son of Man. He talks in verse 23 about how the prophets were treated. So he's not just saying these things about being poor or being hungry from a simple physical point of view. There is a spiritual aspect here. And that's why Matthew does become a bit more explicit about it. And he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. So Matthew makes clear what Luke leaves a little bit more vague, but it's there in Luke by comparing these people to the prophets and by saying that they are suffering because of their affiliation with the Son of Man. It's not just about physical poverty, physical hunger. And what Jesus is doing here, you may probably not be able to remember that just before this, he's called his disciples. And one of the things that I would emphasize again and again about what Jesus is actually doing in the early parts of the Gospels is he's redefining what it means to be Israel, the people of God. By calling 12 men around himself, he is mimicking the 12 tribes of Israel and he is redefining what it means to be part of God's people. And he himself is the center. That's why he goes through the waters of baptism like Israel went through the Red Sea. That's why he's in the wilderness for 40 days like they were there for 40 years being tested. He's repeating the the experiences of Israel because he's redefining what it means to be the people of God. No one comes to the Father except through him. And what he does here, if you know your Old Testament and you've got these blessings and woes, he does something that God does round about Deuteronomy 27, 28. You've got this massive list of blessings and woes that God gives to his people. And Jesus is now taking it and doing the same thing with the disciples. He's redefining what it means to be the people of God. And his ideas are radical. They're upside down. As we get to the end today and we get to our conclusion, we'll see that God thinks really differently from the way the world thinks. Really differently. And one of the things that we have as a challenge as we go through life as Jesus followers is, will we continue to think the way Jesus thinks? Or will we allow the world to just gradually get into our minds and affect our thinking that we begin to think the way the world thinks? So I've called this right side up because when you read these, they seem upside down. And what Jesus says seems upside down. And you could say Jesus has come and he's turned the world upside down. Or you could maybe look at it differently and say Jesus has come and he's turned the world back the right way up. It's right side up again. It's the way it's meant to be. So let's just run through these blessings and woes. There are four of them, four of each of them. They they neatly match together. So what I've done here is just contrasted each set. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. But woe to you who are rich, for you've already received your comfort. Who are the poor? It's not just those who don't have enough money in the bank. 
Right? That is not exclusively what Jesus refers to and what the Bible refers to as the poor. The poor is anyone who are taken advantage of by others. If we back up in Luke to chapter 4 to a really important passage where he quotes from Isaiah 61, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Jesus did not only preach to those who were in poverty. Good news to the poor. And then he elaborates on that. Freedom for the prisoners. Recovery of sight for the blind. Release for the oppressed. So the poor is not just those who don't have enough money. It is anyone who is cast down, oppressed, taken advantage of, exploited, vulnerable in society. Which covers a massive swathe of people. And Jesus says to those people, you're blessed. God is reaching out to you now with his kingdom. The poor is really those who realize they have nothing to bring to the party. They can't come to God and say, look at me, God, with my talents. Look at me with my money. Look at me with whatever. They come to God with nothing. A realization, I have nothing to bring. I'm poor. Or as Matthew says, poor in spirit. And Jesus says, congratulations. Blessed are you who realize that you're poor in spirit, that you're in poverty of soul, and that you have turned to God because he's the only one that can meet your needs. He says, you're blessed. You might look at your circumstances and think, I'm not blessed. But he says, you are. Because you're turning to God to receive the help that you need. And whenever Jesus says, woe to the rich, this is a generalized statement. There are rich people in the Gospels who follow Jesus. There's a guy called Nicodemus who was a rich man. There's a guy called Joseph of Arimathea who was a rich man. Followed Jesus, provided a tomb after the crucifixion. There's a guy called Zacchaeus who was a rich man. And after he encountered Jesus, he did not become a poor man. He stopped ripping people off. He made right what was wrong and he made restitution to people and he was generous with his wealth. But he did not become poor. Okay, so this is a general statement. It does not mean that people who are wealthy are not able to follow Jesus. That would be a misunderstanding. It is more a warning that wealth can become something that we rely on. We become self-sufficient. One of the things that God said to his people when he brought them out of Egypt and into the promised land was beware whenever everything suddenly is okay. And you're not fighting battles anymore. And you're not waiting for manna to fall from sky anymore to get your food every day. Be careful when you become satisfied because it'll become a snare to you when you've got everything you need and you don't need to rely on God as much anymore. Think yourselves, when is your prayer life sharp? It's probably sharp when you're in need, when you really are turning to God, whether that's a physical or a spiritual or whatever it is, when you're turning to God and you realize, I really need you to show up. So so the warning and the, the word woe maybe isn't the best translation. It's more a case of pity those who are rich and think they can rely on their riches, who are self-sufficient, 
Leon Morris is a, a Bible commentator. He has a, he has a book on Luke and he says, The world's blessings can encourage an attitude of self-sufficiency, listen to this, which is fatal to spiritual growth. Once we become self-sufficient and think, I've got all I need, I've made it, uh, and like Jesus, you can, you can probably, if you know Luke's gospel, you can hear parables and stories in the background. You can maybe hear the parable of the rich fool who sat up and thought, I've got it all sorted, I've all I need, I'm going to just put the feet up and enjoy life. Jesus is warning his followers that an attitude of self-sufficiency is fatal to spiritual growth. And he says to a church in the book of Revelation, a church that is complacent, a church that is wealthy in a place called Laodicea, he says, you say that you're rich, you've become wealthy and you have need of nothing. You don't realize that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked. Wealth can cloud our vision that we don't actually see things the way Jesus sees them. He says to the rich, the self-sufficient, the ones who are relying on their own strength and their own possessions, you've already received all that you're going to get. Unless your attitude like Zacchaeus towards it changes, you've already received all that you're going to get. Nothing's coming to you in the future. But the poor, the kingdom of God is theirs already. The second one is blessed are the hungry. You who hunger now, you will be satisfied. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Again, the, the two go together. And Matthew again brings out the spiritual force that's in this. It's not just a physical filling with food. It's the spiritual satisfaction of sitting at God's table as his child. You're hungry. You realize that you need again to go to God to meet your needs and provide for you. Jesus says you're blessed. You ever been so hungry that it hurts? Probably not very often, but I'm sure at some stage in your life you've just felt the hunger pains and you're clean starving and it actually hurts. And Jesus said, blessed are you when you're feeling the pangs and again you're turning to God. You're turning to God. You're receiving his kingdom. You are going to be satisfied. Whereas those who are full to the brim of all the good things in life and lack for nothing, Jesus says you need to be careful. Here's the warning. In the future, you will go hungry. In the future. He's looking towards the day of the Lord. Again, there's parable in the background here, probably the rich man and Lazarus, the rich guy who enjoyed everything during this life, you know, feasted every day and had everything he wanted, and Lazarus who had nothing. And at the end, there was this tremendous reversal. There always is with Jesus. The tables always get turned. We need to see things from his perspective and not from ours. The third one, after we drop a tea. <clears throat> Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. I love laughing. Do you like laughing? I love laughing. I, can't, I find laughing infectious. If I'm in school or kids in school, you know, a kid will just have a giddy fit and just start laughing at nothing and can't stop. And then the tears come 
and I'm sitting at my desk and I start laughing and then the tears come. Laughter's class. What is Jesus saying? Woe to you who laugh. Is he condemning laughter? Is he condemning banter and crack and fun? I don't think so. His whole ministry was a protest against the killjoy attitude of the religious. One of the things we've seen in the early chapters of Luke, and it's all building up to this, is that Jesus is is completely opposed to how religion just restricts people, constrains them and just holds them down and, and makes life miserable. He was rejoicing. He was partying. He was bringing new wine and needed new wineskins. So he does like laughter. And again, I go, I go to The Chosen. We've sort of started watching season two. We're a bit behind. But I love the, just the attitude that Jesus has in that, how he's presented. He's happy. Okay, he's funny sometimes. He's got a sparkle in his eye. He's mischievous and a, and a wee bit sarcastic now and again. And I think they've got it right. Jesus did not, was not opposed to laughter. The, the laughter that he says, woe to is that derision, derisive laughter of the rich who mock others because they reckon they've got all they need. And he says, blessed are you who weep, who mourn. Do you ever feel pain that is actually this pain of the Holy Spirit through you? You ever, ever been aware of that? You, you hear of something that has happened or you, you look at a situation and it's not just the pity of, isn't that awful? It's more than that. You can feel the grief. You, give me a nod. Like you can feel the grief of God over something. Maybe you just see somebody walking down the street or maybe you see a group of young people or you, you see people making bad life choices and you just feel grief. And you wish in a way almost that you didn't. You don't want to feel grief. You want to have fun and you want to enjoy yourself and you don't want to be carrying this sense of mourning. But something's happened. You've become aware of something someone's done and you just feel this grief welling up inside you. You're blessed. (laughs) If you're in tune with that ability to mourn for what Jesus mourns for, to, to look at the brokenness of society around you and feel grief for it, you're blessed. And again, this is the, the people, and you'll, you'll read of them in the Old Testament. Weeping in the Old Testament occurs for a whole variety of reasons and mourning as well. But a lot of the time it's to do with suffering and injustice. When you read of God's people weeping in the Old Testament, suffering and injustice when they are pressurized and persecuted and exiled. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and there we wept, okay, exiled. So when you feel that mourning because life is not the way God intended to be, Jesus says, you're blessed. Again, Luke's gospel, the bigger picture, Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. Do you weep over your town, over your locality, wherever it is you are, do you feel the grief of Jesus for it? To those who are laughing in derision, he'll say there will come a time that it will just all be mourning and weeping. To those who weep, 
We read Revelation, I think it's 21.4, about a time when there will be no more weeping, no more sorrow, no more sighing. And the, the, the problem we have, I think, in the world is we lose sight of that because we get so sucked into the here and now. And our attitudes become aligned with the attitudes of the world around us. And we don't think of a future day that the morning will all be taken away and every tear gone. The last one, blessed are the persecuted. Blessed are you when people hate you, exclude you, insult you, reject your name as evil. Can you find yourself in there somewhere? Plenty of categories that you you might fall into. Because of the Son of Man. Not when people hate you because you're being an idiot. Okay, It's when people hate you because you're associated with Jesus. Not when people insult you and reject you because you're acting like a complete fool. But because you're associated with Jesus. And woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. Remember that sometime when somebody puts you down or you hear something that's been said behind your back or you're criticized, remember that if everybody speaks well of you, that's a problem. (laughs) Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. So hatred, blessed are you when people hate you. In the West, the wonderful super tolerant society that that we live in which is not so wonderful religion is mainly almost a private thing and you're unlikely to be flat out hated for being a christian but in a lot of parts of the world and in a lot of history to publicly align yourself with jesus was to be offensive and to provoke hatred from people and still in many parts of the world today to stand with jesus is to invite hatred. Not to invite tolerance, not to have somebody say, well, I respect your viewpoint even though I disagree. No, to stand with Jesus is to invite hatred. Blessed are they who are hated because they've chosen to stand with Jesus. Excluded. Blessed are you when people hate you when they exclude you. If you stood with Jesus in the first century, you could have been excluded from the synagogue and told you were no longer allowed to attend to hear the Hebrew scriptures being taught. You could have been excluded from social gatherings, no longer invited to sit at a meal with people because you've chosen to follow Jesus. You could have been excluded in business. Somebody who previously was a business associate of yours and who who bought products from you, no more buys their products from you because you've associated with Jesus. You're excluded. Insulted. Sure, you've experienced that bit of slander, bit of verbal attack. Frequently in our culture, it's it's masked as fun, but it's a joke with a jag. Somebody will say something just about Jesus or about Christianity, and they'll say it with a wee smile in their in the face and the, the head over to one side, but there's a wee jag in it. Insulted. Or your name cast out as evil. Reject your name as evil. Total rejection. To attack a person's name is to strike at the very heart of that person. To be called evil because of Jesus. It'll happen if it hasn't happened yet. But woe to the popular. 
Woe to the ones who everybody speaks well of. Because that's how it was for the false prophets. You'll probably, again, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, recall stories, times, whenever Israel had the option of listening to a prophet like Jeremiah, bringing a true word from God that was a bit stingy and hard to listen to, or they could listen to false prophets who prophesied easy things, said nice things with no challenge and no truth in them. And the false prophets were very popular because people liked what they said. And the prophet who came with a word from God was persecuted and cast out, such as was the case for Jeremiah. I do sometimes worry about celebrity preachers. Whenever I'm preparing a message, I will sort of listen to as much as I possibly can and just get the passage into me all week or for a couple of weeks and just go and, and listen and listen and listen and listen. And I, and I went on to, to YouTube the other day to, to listen to a guy on, on this passage and within 10 seconds, I turned it off. The way he walked across the platform, the way they applauded and cheered, I just thought, mate, I can't listen to a word you say. <laughs> Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. That's how their ancestors treated the false prophets. The only command in this passage in Luke, and I'm nearly finished, the only command is to rejoice. Always good to head towards praise with a command from Jesus to rejoice. Those who are poor, who hunger, who weep, and who are hated and excluded are told, how do you, how do you counteract this? How do you fight against this? How do you take your stand? You rejoice. You realize these things and your response is to rejoice, to sing in the battle. We, we sang a, a wee tune a, a while ago for, for a, a few months. This is how I fight my battles. So when I'm persecuted and excluded, when somebody speaks evil of me or you, how do you respond? Do you stand up and defend yourself? Do you fight back? Jesus says, no, rejoice. And why should you rejoice? Two reasons for rejoicing. One, you've got a reward in heaven. Again, the eternal perspective. This is not all there is. And the great sort of lie of life and of the devil is that what's going on around you right now is all there is. It's not. Things are not as they seem. There's more. There's eternal life, eternal fellowship with Jesus and with one another in the presence of God wonderful, unspeakable things ahead of us. So Jesus says, rejoice. You've got a reward in heaven. And not only that, but he says, you're in good company. That's how they treated the prophets. If I'm in the same company as Jeremiah, I'm happy enough to be with Jeremiah. That's good. <laughs> if I'm in the same company as Paul the apostle, that's good with me because I love Paul. Jesus says, rejoice, you are in the same company as these great bearers of truth of old. Let that bring you joy. So two things, I guess, to take away from this tricky little passage. One, an eternal perspective. Jesus' promises in all of this are to do with the eternal. You who are poor, yours is the kingdom of God. You who hunger, you will be satisfied. You who weep, you will laugh. You, when you're rejected, you've got a reward in heaven. 
we need to have an eternal perspective. I don't know about you, and I'm being completely honest here, but I frequently lose it. I don't mean lose the head and throw things about the kitchen. I mean I lose the eternal perspective. I get so caught up in the here and now of just life and work and all sorts of things that I could go for long periods of time and not think about the wonder of what lies ahead or get discouraged about persecution because I see everything in the here and now and if there's a bit of opposition or a bit of difficulty can become very, very discouraged whenever Jesus calls me and says, just look up. There's an eternal perspective. You're blessed. And the second thing is that to to realize that we are living in an upside down world and Jesus comes to put it the right side up again. God's values are very different from the world's values. And we need to think, what does God honor? When we read a passage like this, what sort of people does God honor? Who are the people who are on God's heart? And are those people on our hearts? Do we reach out to the poor? That whole expansive category of the downtrodden, the oppressed, the vulnerable. Do we reach out to them? And do we show them the love of God? I think it's too easy to just give some money and turn a blind eye. I think that's too easy. And feel I've done something for the poor because I've given some money to a charity that supports the poor. You should do that. That's good. Thank God for those charities that support the poor. But I think God's people are called just to get more involved than that and come alongside the poor and walk with them and love them not just make a donation every month and let that push it to the back of our minds. Who does God's heart go out to? We need to remember those who the world forgets. So that's the Beatitudes according to Luke. Next week, we have the much easier task of love your enemies. (laughs) Just to give you something to, to look forward to. Brace yourself because that'll be...